If you have a Bible, you can take it and turn to the book of Acts. Acts chapter 7. Acts 7, and we'll be back in Stephen's response, Stephen's sermon, Stephen, Stephen's speech, whatever you would like to call it uh, here that makes up the bulk of Acts chapter 7. Uh, we'll spend one more week in Acts 7 next, um, next Sunday thinking about Stephen's martyrdom and the spread of the church. And so that, that will be our plan for this week and next. Last week, though, we learned a little bit more about Stephen who was an early leader in the church and the first follower of Jesus to be killed for his belief in Jesus as the Messiah. Uh, It was his defense in Acts 7 and the truth in it that drove his accusers to eventually take up stones and to murder him. But on the surface, Stephen seems to be rehearsing the history of Israel. Uh, So why would a history lesson lead to Stephen's martyrdom? This doesn't happen often, I don't think, in the world, that history lessons lead to the teachers being killed. Um, And so what's going on here? How were Stephen's words so poignant and so provoking as to lead to the religious leaders wanting to kill him and actually following through with that? Well, the accusations made against Stephen are laid out in Acts chapter 6, verses 11 and 13. Uh, We saw this last week that he's charged with being against Moses, God, the temple, and the law. And and those four accusations, they could be parallel. Uh, God is often associated with the temple and Moses with the law. But however you look at it, the crowd and the leaders were saying that Stephen, by following Jesus and preaching about Jesus and saying that he was the Messiah, by doing that, he had come up against all that the Jewish people held dear. He was said to be anti-everything that the Jewish people treasured and cherished. And that's why they were so upset with him. And yet Stephen's words here in chapter 7 communicate that it was not him, but in fact them, through rejecting Jesus as the Messiah, that they were the blasphemers. They were rejecting. They were standing against God's plan of salvation revealed in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. As we considered this sort of standoff between the religious leaders and Stephen last week, we traced this theme of the various locations in which God had blessed the patriarchs and the key figures in Israel. We saw that Stephen revealed the fact that God's ability to bless a people is not tied to a land, it's not tied to a specific city, and it's not tied to a temple within that city. The geographical history of of Israel, therefore, it led to the culminating point of verse 48, namely that God does not dwell in houses made with hands. As the maker of heaven and earth, God is present everywhere. And furthermore, through sending the Spirit to live and to dwell in His redeemed people, he, those who believe in Jesus as Messiah are now temples. And we as individual believers are temples. And the church gathered is, is the temple personally and corporately, we are the temple, the place where God's presence dwells, and we are the instruments of blessing as we move throughout this world and we take God's presence with us wherever we go. The Lord does not dwell in temples made with hands. He dwells in His redeemed people. 
And so Stephen, in, in tracing that ge- geography, he stands against this accusation that he had blasphemed God and the temple. And I wonder if he had just stopped there and said, the Lord doesn't dwell in temples made with hands. If that was all that he said, that he may not have been killed. Because it was his defense against the accusation that he blasphemed Moses and the law that seemed to strike his audience with the greatest force. Because he didn't just say that they, that he had not blasphemed Moses or the law, but he instead said that they had. They had accused him of blasphemy, but by the end of his defense, Stephen tells his audience in extremely strong words, he says, you have rejected Jesus just as you have always rejected all of God's messengers. And rather than accept that confronting message, the crowd chose instead to kill Stephen, who was the messenger. Now, Stephen's message comes to our hearts as well. And his message is just as strong and it's just as opposed to our human pride and it's just as likely to stir up anger in our hearts if we are separated from God because of our sin. Stephen's voice calls out from the pages of Scripture and it tells us this. It says, apart from God's work in us, we all will reject Jesus and the good news he brings. Apart from God's work in us, we all all, every single one of us, will reject Jesus and we will reject the good news that he brings to us. I think we often assume that we're different from everyone else. I think it's funny the quote that says, you're, you're special just like everyone else. You know, It's kind of the oxymoron of that. But I think that sometimes we think, we look at this passage of Scripture and we think that we would have responded different to this situation. That on this day, as Stephen preached, we would have been the ones that said, you're right, Stephen, we have rejected the prophets, we rejected Jesus, and now we're going to repent. But the reality is that we don't know that. The reality is that apart from God's work in us, we all will reject Jesus and the good news that he brings. Each of us are sinners and rebels opposed to God and opposed to his work in our lives, opposed to his work in our worlds, and just like everyone else, since the rebellion and the rejection of Adam and Eve, we too push God away. And so as we think about this sermon once again, I want us to see how Stephen is driving to this point through his history lesson, this point that apart from God's work in us, we all will reject Jesus and the good news he brings. And then I want us to see some different responses that we can have. We'll talk about these at the end, but just so you know where we're heading, the responses to Stephen's sermon and to this big idea is is to repent and believe if we're still separated from Christ, to not be like the crowd, but to turn and to believe. Secondly, if we are, then to be filled with gratitude and humility that Christ has awakened us. And then the third response we'll talk about is to anticipate opposition as we preach the gospel to people, but to still resolve that we will boldly proclaim the good news of the gospel like Stephen did. So I want to read more, uh, read again um, some of Stephen's uh, sermon. I want to start in verse 17, and we'll pick up in the middle of Stephen's defense. You'll remember that Stephen began with Abraham, and then he moved on to Joseph. And beginning here in verse 17, he's going to start uh, speaking about at length about Moses, about Moses' life and his calling uh, and the responses of the people to Moses' leadership. 
and then he's going to move into David and Solomon briefly and then get to that, the, the main point of verse 48, which was about not dwelling in temples made with hands. But then the, the big indictment of verse 51 that we'll be thinking a lot about is, is, is the, these words that Stephen says, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. And so with that big idea in mind and the thought that we're pushing towards verse 51 and, and what Stephen's saying, let's, um, let's look at God's word and let's trust that God's spirit is going to lead us into truth through these words. Acts chapter 7, beginning in verse 17. This is what Stephen says. But as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. At this time Moses was born, and he was beautiful in God's sight. And he was brought up for three months in his father's house, and when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds. When he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wrong, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation, salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. Now when forty years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in a flame of fire in a bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight. And as he drew near to look, there came the voice of the Lord. I am the Lord of your, I am the, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, take off the sandals from your feet for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their groaning and have come down to deliver them. And now come. I will send you to Egypt. This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? This man, God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers, he received living oracles to give us. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside. And in their hearts, they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us out from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned away and gave them over to worship the host of heaven, as it is written in the book of the prophets. 
Did you bring me slain beasts and sacrifices during the forty years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Moloch and the star of your god Raphan, the images that you made to worship, and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers in turn brought it in with Joshua and when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David, who found favor in the sight of God and asked to, and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Apart from God's work in us, we all will reject Jesus and the good news that he brings. I want us to begin by considering the content of Stephen's message and how he's driving to that point. And in doing this, Stephen's tracing Israel's history of rejecting God's messengers. It's hinted at um, in the story of Joseph, and then it's worked out in detail in the story of Moses. So let's think about Joseph. You know this story about Joseph. In verse 9, Stephen encapsulates the dysfunction of Jacob's family in one sentence. He says, And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. Uh, you remember that Joseph was the was favored by his father Jacob because he was the first son of Rachel who had been barren for years and this was no secret to Joseph's 11 brothers because Jacob gave Joseph a special, you're my favorite son, coat of many colors. And so everyone knew what Jacob was thinking. And if that wasn't enough, then Joseph started waking up in the morning. He'd come down to breakfast and he'd tell all his brothers how he had dreams that one day they were all going to bow down to him. And so when he was sent by his father and, and came upon uh, his brothers grazing the sheep in faraway Shechem, things went downhill very quickly. You remember his brothers with that famous phrase where they said, here comes this dreamer. And then they said, let's kill him and throw him into one of the pits. And they did throw him into a pit, but instead of killing him, they sold him into slavery in Egypt, an act that was meant for evil, but that God turned for their good and actually for the good of many people. An act, too, that actually led to them bowing down before Joseph. Stephen tells us that the actions of Joseph's brothers were fueled by jealousy. They were jealous of his favored status, and they were jealous of the prophetic dreams that had them bowing down before him. And out of their jealousy and their pride and their unwillingness to even think about bowing down to Joseph, they were ready to kill him. They were willing to sell him into slavery. And then they continually, for years, lied to their father about what had happened to their brother. The parallels between Joseph and Jesus are not elaborated on, um, but they're easy to see. You think about Joseph, he's the, the favored son sent to bless his brothers, but he's rejected by them out of jealousy. 
except when Jesus, the favored son, sent to bless his brothers, is rejected out of jealousy. This time, he is killed. The brothers didn't kill Joseph, but Jesus was rejected and he was crucified. As Joseph's jealous brothers had dealt with him, so the jealous religious leaders had dealt with Jesus. Beware of jealousy. certainly seems to lead to some very nasty things. Stephen holds out this account from Genesis 37 to 50 as a prime example of how Israel, at their very roots, with the 12 sons of Jacob, who would become the 12 tribes of Israel, at their very roots they had hearts that rejected their God-given leaders and prophets. Joseph, who was set apart by God as a leader, was rejected by his brothers because of their pride and jealousy. And here in the book of Acts, the jealousy of the religious leaders, which we saw in the high priest and we saw in the Sadducees in Acts 5.17, and which we see here in Stephen's accusers, this continues, and they reject their leaders. The rejection of of Joseph led to him being sold into Egypt, which, as we've already said, was an evil act that God turned for good. But their time in Egypt also led to them being in slavery and to to them being oppressed. And so the children of Israel are oppressed and they're in slavery and they're in Egypt and they're calling out in anguish and God hears them and he sends them a deliverer. He sends them Moses. And so Moses is now who Stephen Stephen turns to. Moses was not a perfect man. Scripture is clear on this. It's not trying to paint him as someone who never did anything wrong. But we find that Stephen never points out any of Moses' failures or weaknesses. He speaks about his miraculous preservation as a baby, as well as his wisdom and his power and word and deed that was gained in part through his time in the palace in Egypt, but also chiefly through God's hand on him. And Stephen describes Moses as God's chosen deliverer, as the one who had received the law written by the finger of God on Mount Sinai. And in all of his descriptions about Moses, not once does Stephen give his accusers grounds to say that he's blaspheming Moses, but rather he reveals how much he respected Moses as a leader in Israel's history. And rather in all of this, Stephen shows that the story of Moses was a story of rejected leadership. That the story of Moses showed that the children of Israel rejected and blasphemed Moses. Stephen talks about Moses' first attempt to lead Israel when he came from the palace where he had been raised in order to visit and be among his people. And while among them, he saw an Egyptian who was oppressing one of his fellow Israelites. And he killed that Egyptian. When I read that on the surface, it it seems to me like a failure on Moses' part, that Moses kills a man and then buries him in the sand. That doesn't seem positive. But Stephen frames this idea... This act as an act of leadership on Moses' part. That in killing this Egyptian, he is enacting justice on someone who is oppressing God's people. And then the next day, when he found two of his fellow Israelites quarreling, he tried to make peace between them. So Moses comes from the palace, comes from this exalted place, and he comes to humbly serve the Israelites, to serve them as a just judge and to serve them as a peacemaker. What more could they ask for? That's what they wanted. They wanted someone to bring justice for them and to bring peace for them. But their response was to pridefully reject his leadership and to say, who made you a ruler and a judge over us? The enslaved Israelites who had been, had been calling out to God for deliverance, 
when God sends them a deliverer, they push him away. We don't want to be delivered. So Moses flees to Midian. And 40 years later, after God appeared to him in the burning bush, he returned to Egypt and he delivered God's people through wonders and signs seen throughout Egypt in the ten plagues, seen through their passing through the Red Sea and through God's provision and protection in the wilderness. And after relating all of this in verses 35 to 38, Stephen sort of spells out in rapid succession who, who Moses was. Look at how he does this in, in chapter 7, beginning in verse 35. He says, this Moses, this man, this Moses whom they rejected, saying, who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as a both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. Verse 36, this man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give to us. And what was the response of the Israelites to this man, to this Moses? Look at verse 39. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside, and in their hearts they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. They not only rejected Moses, but they chose instead to worship a golden calf to worship the host of heaven, the gods of Moloch and Rephon. They turned from the true God and from His messenger to false gods and idols. Why? Because these were gods of their own making. These were the, they rejoiced, the text says, in the works of their own hands rather than to bow down before the God who had made them and delivered them. They rejected their God-given deliverers and their leaders, and they chose idols that they had made. And it's this same attitude that Stephen says fills the hearts of all of those who were standing before him. He says, as your fathers did, so do you. You have rejected your deliverer. You've rejected your Messiah. He describes the crowd in vivid terms in verse 51, and in doing so, he describes all of our hearts apart from God. He says that we all are four different things. First, he says we are stiff-necked. We're stiff-necked. This description of being a stiff-necked people is tied so closely to Exodus 32-34, to part of which Joel read earlier and which is referred to by Stephen here. This is where the Israelites were found worshiping the golden calf as their deliverer, and God threatened to not go with them into the promised land because he said... They are a stiff-necked people. What does that phrase mean? What comes to your mind when you think about being stiff-necked? Maybe you've had a stiff neck. If you have a stiff neck, it usually means you you can't bend it. There's something wrong and you you can't bend your neck one way or the other. Stiff-necked, I asked Andrea what came to her mind and she said it made her think about a a horse who won't, won't turn where you're trying to get it to go. It's got this stiff neck and won't go where you're telling it to. And Stephen says that the people that day were stiff-necked. They would not humbly bow their heads in submission to God. They would not listen to His commands and go where He said. 
They would not admit their need of his salvation. They would not bend their knees or their necks and trust in him as their Savior and Lord, but would continue to trust in the work of their hands, believing that they could save themselves. And like uh, like them, none of us are born with necks that want to bend before God. We're born with a stiff neck. We're prideful, and we assume that we can save ourselves somehow through the works of our own hands. So maybe do a little doctor's check. How's your neck? How easily does your neck bend? How quickly are you willing to bow before the Father? The next accusation from Stephen is that his hearers are uncircumcised in heart and ears. They're stiff-necked, and second, they're uncircumcised in heart and ears. When Abraham was discussed earlier in Stephen's um, speech, Stephen reminded us of the sign of circumcision. This was the sign that God had given to Abraham and to his descendants to remind them that they were set apart and that they were heirs of the promises given to Abraham. It was a deeply valued mark of God's chosen people, but it soon became something that they saw as another work of their hands, something that they did that made them acceptable before God. And so throughout the Old Testament, there are hints regarding the need to not simply have the physical sign of circumcision, but to be truly set apart to God. So Deuteronomy 30 verse 6 speaks of God circumcising the hearts of the Israelites when they entered the land. Another place, Jeremiah 9 25 to 26 says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will punish all those who are circumcised merely in the flesh. Egypt, Judah, Edom, the sons of Ammon, Moab, and all who dwell in the desert, who cut the corners of the hair. For all these nations are uncircumcised, and all the house of Israel are uncircumcised in heart. When Jesus comes, he tells the Pharisees that they're they're trusting in being Abraham's descendants and heirs of the covenant marked by, uh, by circumcision, but that that's not what's going to save them on the last day. That physical lineages and physical signs are worthless unless they're coupled with faith. To be physically circumcised but uncircumcised in heart is worthless. So Stephen picks up the words of the prophets, he picks up, picks up the message of Jesus, and he boldly tells his hearers, that the outward work of the hand, their hands will not save them because their hearts are set against God and their ears will not listen to Him. Can you imagine the boldness it would take to stand before a predominantly Jewish audience and say, you are uncircumcised? You start to get why they were so angry at Stephen. He tells them that they must be circumcised in their, their hearts and their ears. They must, in fact, be given new hearts through the new covenant. And like them, we are all enraged when we are told that our heart naturally and sinfully resists God. We don't want to hear the thought that we can do nothing to make ourselves right before God. That apart from God's grace, we will be lost forever. We don't want to hear that. So we have stiff necks, but we also have hearts that don't want to respond to this. How's your heart? Is it set apart to God through repentance? Or is it stony? Has it been made new by faith in Jesus? We are naturally, just like Stephen's hearers, we are stiff-necked, we are uncircumcised, and next Stephen says that his hearers and we are resistant 
to the Holy Spirit. We are resistant to the Holy Spirit. We resist Him. We, we push Him away. Paul, quoting the, the Psalms, tells us in Romans 3 that there is no one righteous, not one. That we all have turned away. That no one seeks after God. In our flesh, we resist the work of the Spirit and we choose to follow our own sinful path and plan. We reject Jesus, who is the righteous one, and assume that we can be righteous. But we can't. And so Stephen concludes, and he says that we are lawbreakers. This is later on. He says in verse 53, You received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. We are lawbreakers. The law written in stone and written on our hearts is something that we have received. And while we might try to keep it and earn our salvation by doing by what we can do, God's law is intended to reveal that we are unrighteous, we are sinners, we are lawbreakers, and we need a Savior. We need a righteous one who can do what we could never do. So who are we? Like the crowd, we are stiff-necked. We are uncircumcised in heart. And ears, we are resistant to the Holy Spirit, and we are lawbreakers. This is who we all are as those born in sin. And it is what we will remain unless God graciously by His Spirit softens our necks and gives us a new heart. A heart that hears His Holy Spirit and that is awakened to keep the law, not to earn our salvation by keeping it, but to honor and to please our Father. These attitudes led the fathers of Stephen's hearers to persecute all and to kill many of the prophets who talked about the coming righteous one, he says. And so Stephen says, you're just like your parents. You're just like your fathers. It makes perfect sense that you would betray and murder Jesus, who was the righteous one, that all of these prophets beforehand foretold and foreshadowed. Jesus is the seed of blessing that was promised through Abraham. Jesus is the heir of David and Solomon's throne, but in our sinful pride, we reject his blessing and we reject his rule. Jesus is the greater Joseph. He's the favored son, but he was sold for silver and he was left for dead by all of his brothers that he had come to serve. The one who God took the evil done against him and turned it for salvation of many. That's who Jesus is. The evil that was done to him was meant to harm him, but it it turned for salvation. But yet, unlike the brothers who eventually did bow before Joseph in, in Egypt, we will refuse to bow our knee to Jesus. And Jesus is the greater Moses. He came from the palace, from this exalted place to bring deliverance to his brothers and sisters in slavery to sin. But we would rather worship the idols that we make than follow him. And yet how gracious God is. We push Him away and yet He continually comes to us and He has made a way for us to turn and to believe. He blessed Israel, continued to be with them though they rejected Him. And now He offers salvation to everyone who will turn and who will repent. Apart from God's work in us, we will all reject Jesus and we will all reject the good news that He brings. But God can and He does do a work in our hearts. And He may even be doing that work in your heart.
for the first time this afternoon. And if that's true, then you should respond in repentance and faith. The way of salvation isn't found in what we do or what we don't do. It's found in what Jesus has done. Jesus is the righteous one who never rebelled against the Father, but fulfilled the entire law. And as the righteous one, he took our sin upon himself and paid the penalty for our rebellion. He calls us to turn from our stiff-necked, hard-hearted, Holy Spirit-resisting, law-breaking ways and to trust Him, to repent of these things and to find salvation through faith in what He's done. Because every single one of us has sinned and we all have to repent and believe. You know, when a, a child is born, they seem so innocent and perfect, don't they? And yet they are stiff-necked, uncircumcised in heart and ears. They are lawbreakers and they will resist God's Spirit. And so I would say even to the the kids of Grace Fellowship, we love you kids. But as a church, we also know that apart from God's grace, that you will reject the Gospel. So, look at these hearers of Stephen's sermon and realize that you are not innocent and that the faith of your parents and the faith of this church will not save you. Only turning from your sin, only trusting in the work of Christ on your behalf will save you. So for old and young alike, Psalm 95 tells us that if God awakens us to our sin, it says today, If you hear His voice, don't harden your hearts. If you're awakened to your sin, today is a day of salvation. Today is a day to repent and to believe. Don't wait and don't think that you can do something with your hands someday that will make you acceptable to God. Because none of us can. Apart from God's work, we will all continually reject His good news. But He's made a way. And all we need to do is repent and believe. Don't trust the work of your hands like the Israelites did and like we all want to do. But instead say this, not what my hands have done can save my guilty soul. Not what my toiling flesh has borne can make my spirit whole. Not what I feel or do can give me peace with God. Not all my prayers and sighs and tears can bear my awful load. Thy work alone, thy blood alone, O Lamb of God, can give me peace within. Thy love to me, O God, not mine, O Lord, to thee, can rid me of this dark unrest and set my spirit free. I pray that we would all know that good news. And if our hearts have sung like that song, then we hear the sermon of Stephen. Our response should be gratitude and humility. Deep gratitude and deep humility. Because our salvation is owing only to God's gracious work in us through His Spirit or else we would still be stiff-necked, unrepentant souls thinking that we were doing God's work by resisting the Gospel. That's every single one of us. We would be resisting God apart from His grace. The Gospel breaks our necks. 
the gospel rips out our stony hearts. And as we lie dead in our sins, Jesus chooses to resurrect us. He mends us. He breathes life into us. He gives us a new heart. And we rise to our knees and we bow before Him. And when we do that, we banish every bit of pride. Every bit of self-sufficiency. Any bit of hope in the work of our own hands. And so, I would say to us, to my brothers and sisters, that, that God didn't save you because of anything in you. That you're no better than these people that Stephen was speaking to. We are the people that speak, that Stephen is speaking to. And we are saved by grace and by grace alone. And if you have been saved by God's grace through His Spirit, then let's be filled with gratitude. Let's be filled with humility. Let's not be filled with pride, thinking that God has saved us because of what we've done. And if that's true, then a final response, if one is to repent and believe Another is to be filled with gratitude and humility. And another, this final one, is to be filled with anticipation and boldness. Specifically thinking about as we take this gospel to other people, that we would have anticipation and boldness. Now, anticipation usually has the idea of we're anticipating something good. But here's what I want you to anticipate. Anticipate resistance. If it's true that apart from God's work in us, we will all reject Jesus and the good news that he brings, then we should expect that people, when they hear the gospel, will initially reject it. That they will not want to hear this message. We should not be surprised if the world hates us and if it hates our message. That's what Jesus told us. It's a message that goes against everything that we are in our flesh. And so as we share the gospel, we should anticipate opposition and even hostility we shouldn't be surprised at ridicule or mockery or rejection for some reason i think as american christians we're surprised at these things we think because of some supposed understanding of our history as a nation that everyone's just going to listen to what we say and accept it because well we're in america that's not true Because every person, no matter where we're from, pushes back against the gospel because the gospel banishes pride and it kills everything. And it says that we cannot do what we think we can do. We cannot save ourselves. But in the midst of the resistance that we face, we also must boldly and lovingly proclaim the good news of salvation. And we do it with great hope. Hope that if we have been saved, if we have been redeemed, then others can be as well. There's even a great seed of hope at the end of this passage. Who's the man standing there holding the coats as everyone throws stones? It's Saul. It's Saul who becomes Paul who takes the gospel to the ends of the earth. Saul who rejected this. Saul who probably agreed with everything that was happening there. And yet there was hope even for him. And so we can anticipate resistance, but also stand in boldness. And we can do it even when it might cost us our lives. Apart from God's work in us, we will all reject 
Jesus and the good news that he brings. If God has awakened you to say, I don't want to reject that, I want to receive the gospel, then today is the day of salvation. Don't harden your heart. And if he has done it, then be filled with gratitude and deep humility as we pray together later and as we sing All I Have is Christ, that that would overflow in our hearts and that we would go out knowing that people will resist us, but also that we can go in boldness like Stephen, knowing that some will hear. And if we have heard and if we have responded, then there's hope for everyone. Let's take a moment of silence and then I will pray and we will sing. Jesus, we worship you as the righteous one. Father, thank you for sending Christ, knowing that he would be rejected and betrayed and crucified, but also knowing that he would be raised to life so that we could be brought back to you and be saved. Lord, thank you for pursuing stiff-necked rebels and sinners like us. Lord, we are filled with humility and gratitude. I pray by your Spirit that you would stir that deep within us today and throughout this coming week. I ask it all in Jesus' name.